Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Sarabeth Hapusta is a second-generation survivor of more than 25 years of abuse within a cult masquerading as a Baptist church. After her escape, she learned that shame cannot survive the power of love and has spent the last seven years rebuilding her life, reuniting with estranged family, and also becoming an attorney. She's an advocate at heart who desires to give a voice to the voiceless among us. Here's Sarah Beth now. I want to be able to welcome Sarah Beth today. It was fortuitous that you got in contact with me, and then I was able to have a conversation with your mom on the show, Cindy Rudd, who told her perspective, and then having been able to come out of her situation and reconnect with her kids, I know that uh, you had initially been in contact, and I've been wanting to speak with you, so I'm really glad to have you on the show today. and. We're going to be doing it in an interesting way where first I'm going to speak with you and then your mom is going to join the conversation, which will be for the upcoming episode. And so welcome. I'd love for you to just introduce yourself. I am Sarah Beth Capusta um, and I live in Virginia. I currently am working um, in curriculum development for an online school which is interesting, um, but I was and would like to continue to be an attorney. Um, we moved from the state of Maryland just a few months ago, and unfortunately, I do not have the Virginia Bar. So that is kind of the next thing on my list is to get licensed in the state where I live. But for now, I've reverted back to my background in education. So um, we're developing curriculum for middle school and high school English and foreign languages. But anyways, um, most uh-huh. interestingly, <laughs> I grew up in a cult and that is, <laughs> that is my story in a nutshell. Um, and the last seven years, I got out seven years ago, have been full of interesting uh, healing and discovery and understanding of what actually happened over those years and lots of res- restoration of relationships and um, and just knowing even who I am, probably getting to know myself has been a lot of it um, and coming to terms with who I am, how much of it is because of how I grew up and then how much of it is coming out that that was conditioned out of me. Um, the personality that I was born with that they wanted to get rid of. And that's been interesting to find that voice um, over the last seven years. First of all, I want to say that uh, I love that you've been able to find something else to do right now that is actually wonderful and really important to be able to develop that kind of curriculum. And so uh, right now uh, we are talking just to kind of give people a frame of reference while we're still dealing with uh, the virus. And so that's why we are, we've modified where we are and talking to each other from our homes rather than workplaces or wherever we would normally talk to each other. And uh, so I know I just wanted to sort of put that as a backdrop, that that's also something I want to be able to get to, because I know a lot of people who have left uh, cultic groups are dealing with reacting to something happening in the world, something that might make them feel uh, that they are unprotected because they've left the kind of magical protection of a cult. I want to make sure to to talk about that at some point. But you also talked about this idea of a personality being something that sort of drummed out of you, sort of who you are. I wasn't thinking of saying who you were, but really who you are. You just couldn't be. And now coming out and being able to develop you. And that is really incredible. A lot of people talk about having met themselves for the first time when they came out of a group. And so I wonder if that's been your experience. I think so, um, for sure. Even just last night, talking with my husband over some of the 
details of the things that happened, I realized how much I just learned to be ashamed of myself. That was shame was the everything. That was the theme. I just kind of ran through some stuff with my husband last night. And I realized that was the theme of every Mm -hmm. single thing that I said was shame was um, what, you know, just even just my needs, my needs, I could pour myself out for other people. And I still love to do that. Um, The kind of work I like to do is still Mm -hmm. people centered, but I would almost die for other people. And if I needed something, I was shamed for that. And so that's just such a strange thing. And you come out into the world where I think where love is, to me, it's the opposite of shame. I think, I don't know if that's quite a good definition, but it's partial and it covers things. We cover for each other and we love the good things about each other. And we, you know, we bear along with the bad things about each other. And any, even things that were not necessarily bad about personality, it was, they decided it didn't fit their paradigm. They wanted it gone. So you had to be ashamed of that about you. For me, I'm talkative, very assertive. And um, I don't know, I guess the words they would use would be aggressive. And, um, and there are actually, um, actually two different cults that I've been a part of in my life. Um, I forgot to say that. Um, the first one, and then I immediately left that one and hopped right on into that fire right out of the frying pan. Uh, it was, de- it was cult light compared to what I grew up with, but for sure, um, cultic, I don't, I really care about the people in there. And I know that if I say these things, highly, highly doubt they'd even listen to this. Um, because they're not there they don't like modern okay. technology so um, they won't hear this but um yeah uh so there was um one set of type of beliefs i grew up with and then i jumped into another set where um women were not able to do other than the baby bearers basically um so the fact that i had been in law school that was a sense the fact that i had a personality that wasn't silent and submissive and their whatever version of submission. So I went through that for a time as well and then had to leave them. Um, and so there's, there was lots of steps um, to get where I am now. Okay. Wow. So, but it's interesting. You started to say that if anyone from the group listened and they probably will not be, but was there a message you wanted to get across to them or a worry that you had about sharing certain things about the group that they might hear? I think my worry isn't so much that I'm sharing the truth or that I'm being bold to say the things I'm saying as much as I want to be sensitive to how I say things so that Mm. people will hear it. Because when you, and I, it's so, it's hard because I'm not attacking these groups, although I want to sometimes, um, I want to educate them and reach out to them and say, and just remembering that I also was there, you know, um, that I think that's my concern. Also, I live in a small town and a lot of people know the same people that I know. Um, but I think that's my concern more is how am I coming across, um, so that they, they can be receptive. And then, as I said that, I was like, well, they're not even going to listen to this because they wouldn't be receptive to, um, for instance, I was severely depressed and having the PTSD symptoms, nightmares, panic attacks. And they were telling me if I would just take my thoughts captive, that's a favorite verse out of the Bible, um, then I would stop having those nightmares. And um, they blamed, essentially blamed me for my reacting to having come out of the, the first cult that I grew up in. Um, so um, they didn't believe in any kind of psychology. Basically, they believed that everything you needed, you could learn from the Bible. And they they would say that out of one side of their mouth, but then the other side, I'm like, well, you go to the doctor. The doctor didn't read the Bible to do heart surgery. So why is it okay to say that about the mind versus the bot? Like it's all connected, you know? So that's, that's the background I'm coming from. Um, and even the church or cult that my mom and I were in, the leader was a PhD in psychology. And 
yet they still didn't like modern psychology, whatever you want to call it, because it took away their power, I think. Uh, Right. I do want to get back to something you said, and then we'll go back and get more specific about your story. I'm always curious to hear how people within the leadership of a group justify these contradictions. And so if you brought up, you know, well, you know, you go to a heart surgeon or whatever else, uh, how would that be responded to? In the, in the first, the one I grew up in for 25 years, mm-hmm. that I would have been shut down immediately for questioning authority. There wouldn't have been, you would, I knew growing up as I was basically born into that particular person control that I didn't ask that question at all. Anytime you questioned, it was, it, it was basically, you were questioning God and we don't do that. So um, that would have happened. In the second church, it was, a, it was much more open. It was definitely more my relationship with a particular leader, leadership mm-hmm. family there, um, but certainly the entire congregation each family, I would say it was kind of more of like each family had their own version of like a family home cult and their beliefs and the control specifically over the women, but also the men. Um, If you question the authority, which I did, they would just, they would answer you, but they might just, they would say essentially things like, you just need to listen. They didn't have a good answer. Um, I, the thing that unraveled the second one for me, which is so funny to me, was they didn't think women should be lawyers, they didn't think women should be doctors, but they also didn't think that men should be OBGYNs because it's inappropriate. And so I was thinking of this and I was talking to them and I was like, how can you say that? If you care about people and you care about women and you think that a woman can't be a doctor and if she is, she's endangering her soul for eternity. But then you also believe that a man can't because it's also endangering his soul. You're going to allow a woman to be in sin so that your daughter can get an OBGYN appointment. You only care about yourself. And I was like, so how do you handle that? And I did ask them that question. They didn't have a good answer. And that was the fact that unraveled the whole thing for me. That one, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. You guys are crazy. And <laughs> so was, that's the one thing. Like, And it, it just, and I started realizing, well, that was the one thing. And the fact that he wouldn't let me date my now husband, that I left to date him. Um, so they were using particular scriptures about very obscure, very, very obscure to say that not have emotion uh, before marriage, not just um, physical intimacy before marriage, but emotions before marriage. And they, I was about 27 years old at the time, met my husband. He was five years older than me. Um, he wanted to take mm-hmm. me out on a date and that was mm-hmm. not going to happen. And, um, I'll let you know, I'll let you figure out how well that went. You can't get to know a person in a large group of people. Um, especially for me, I had trust issues. I'm not going to be able to be myself or be in front of right. a group of people getting to know a, a man and knowing that I would want to you know, spend the rest of my life with someone I was mm-hmm. looking to get married. And so. I eventually challenged them on their notion of what they called biblical courtship or dating. And that came, it came down to that for me. It was the gynecological question. And, um, and also I just met this awesome person that I would like to get to know better and you are keeping me from him and there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. And so I left them at that point. But when you challenge their authority, like I said earlier, so I wrote a a letter to the pastor of that congregation and said, I will not stay here anymore for the following reasons. And even just scripturally on my, in my faith, I was like, you're violating these things. Well, that didn't go over well because I'm a woman and I was challenging authority. But the minute you take a stand and say, well, I'm going to do this, whether you accept it or not, um, they cut you off. Um, and they were supporting me financially as well. Um, the second, hope this is staying straight, clear and straight, because it's very complicated. As you, I mean, you've interviewed all kinds of stories, um, it's very complicated and nuanced. But when I left and came into their influence, 
they believe that I shouldn't be working outside the home, even though I was a single woman, they have the belief that either you should be under your dad or under your husband. And I was in this in-between stage, but they still, they called it stay-at-home daughter. And um, that's still something that's going on today in Christianity. And I love to speak out against it, suppressing women everywhere. Um, But they believe that if you work for a employer outside of your husband or father, depending on your stage of life, um, you are essentially submitting to someone who's usurping the authority of your father or your husband. It's very controlling and it, it breaks down logically very quickly because there's many women who never get married and there's many stories, many, many different variations. Um, but they, they say that. So yeah, that's what they were, that's what they were believing. And there's different, there's a spectrum, uh, the sliding scale of the intensity of that, but that is what I, that I spent about a year in that and learned to be ashamed of being a woman in that group. Mm. Just the one year in there did a lot of damage. Right. Okay. So it does happen a lot that people will leave a group and then get involved in another one in part because it's familiar and because I think it takes care of some of the fears that you might have about being on your own in the world or a lack of trust maybe in yourself and you still feel like you need to be dependent on someone else to guide you. Is that, is that what the draw was or, and what else was it? Actually, I'm so glad you said that. I realized something very recently in the last several weeks about all of that time period. And so it was several things. One, I was trying, I think my mom said this in her interview, I needed to have a good spiritual reason to leave the first place. Mm-hmm. So I went straight. I'm not saying like I spent a few months looking. I went straight out of one to another. So they did help me get out of something worse. And they saw the bad things, the manipulation, the abuse, they saw it. But cults are good at calling other cults out. I mean, I see, I watch it on tele. I mean, they're awesome at it. That's what our church, our church did it growing. I mean, goodness gracious. So there is that. Um, my identity was wrapped up in authority. I had to have someone be in charge of me to be a person. And I didn't realize how much that question was in my mind until I left their church. At that point, for the first time ever in my whole life, I didn't have any oversight. Because at that point, my dad was still not in my life from the first place I left. And then I, didn't have a pastor or any authority in my life. And I was just a single female in an apartment sitting on the floor and asking myself, who am I? And this is the word that they use. They call it covering. I don't even know. I know they say it's in the Bible. I honestly don't believe it's there unless I can think of an obscure scripture, but they call it covering. And I remember sitting on the floor and like laying on my stomach and getting my laptop out and asking someone on Facebook Messenger, he was a local leader here in Virginia. He was the most authoritative man I could find and asking him, what do I do if I don't have covering? Who am I? Mm. Well, I picked a bad person because it came out later on that he had been abusive to other people. But it's so funny that that's the person <laughs> I sniffed out at that moment. And I thought back to that in just a few weeks ago and realized that I've been looking for my identity to be found in what a Particular, and I didn't mean to go feminist. I'm not even really a feminist, but what a man in authority thinks of me is where I would find my security. So it had to be validated by a man in authority, specifically in the church, and not like authority, like a police officer or, you know, something like that. So that's what I was looking for and trying to find that affirmation. Honestly, that has been something. I've been letting go of gradually, like it was, I had, I felt like I had to have it. It was like an addiction until honestly this past year, kind of writing in my journal and thinking back and just going like, thinking back to the person I was sitting on the floor, that was like, who am I without people telling me what to do? (laughs) So, um, it's been, it's scary. It's scary. Like you said, um, you join a group of people, especially for me growing up, this is how I grew up. I didn't come to this as an adult. I had nothing else to compare life to. Right. 
I know if I follow this checklist of rules, I am doing what God wants me to do and I am secure and safe. And um, it was as I would study scripture for myself that I realized that they weren't even saying the right words. They weren't using the Bible correctly. And so as I learned to read for myself, that's how I would end up leaving these places. I was in law school and I left the first one and just getting that kind of logical, analytical way of thinking, if this, then this, and approaching scripture with the mind of an attorney and reading it just for what it said, as opposed to what they said that it said. And they said, I can't, you know, and you mentioned earlier, you don't trust yourself. A hundred percent, I didn't trust myself. They taught me that I could not trust myself from a very young age. And so that they could tell me my heart motivation anytime they wanted to. They could, you didn't even have to do anything wrong. They could just go, I can't believe you just did that with that motivation. So um, I think the biggest example of that, that I remember the clearest, which I think I've noticed these pivotal moments, even though they seem small, why do they stand out in your mind? I think it was either like a trauma or something major happened in my mind. I was about 12 years old. And after church one evening, um, my youth leader, two of the pastors, it was a million different people in charge, call me and my mom to the back of the church, sit us down and they gang up on me. My mom didn't. She was just like, what's going on? She was with me on that. Uh, she, they said, last night, at cooking club, which, or last week at cooking, we were homeschooled. We had our home at class. We called it cooking club. So they said last week at cooking club, you were dancing centrally in the yard. What do you have to say for yourself? And, and we grew up, that was the, that was like, that was a bad thing to do back then. Um, I don't think I had the capacity to actually dance centrally at the time or know what, any, what that meant. And if I did, I was 12 years old, but I know that I did. I was crying because that was something at the time. And even still, I value modesty and being a decent person. I wouldn't have just tried to be in someone's front yard seducing anyone. I said, I didn't do it. I did not do that. And I was crying. And they looked at me and they said, yes, you did. And they quoted a scripture, which this is not what it means. But they said, you don't know the depths of the wickedness of your own heart. Wow. And you don't know, you don't know your motivation. And so that moment really changed me. I know that's such a simple story, but they had the upper hand. So then they're like, and then I wish at the time I could have shot back with, well, then how can you judge it if you don't know your own heart? But that's like a whole other conversation. To clarify, it's literally saying it's a hyperbole. It's a literary, I, I read it like a literary person. And they used it like a command and, and said that and then made me confess the next day in girls' youth group what I had done. And those things happened all the time where you get blamed for something. Your initial reaction is, I did not do that. I did not mean for that to come out that way or that's not wrong. At the end of the conversation, you end up in tears repenting of what you had done. So it's just sort of like, and then eventually they train you to just do it to yourself. That's fascinating though. The part about training you to do it to yourself. I mean, I really, I want to make sure that people really hear that, that, that there, yes. there's a lot that people uh, who run these groups, start these groups do just to set the ball in motion. And then they can kind of take a back seat because you're going to keep doing it to yourself to keep yourself in line, to keep yourself acting in a way that's going to make them happy with you. Um, and so then the followers do so much. They do the lion's share of the work uh, afterwards, which I think people don't mm -hmm. realize. Um, and I, I wanted to get back to something also that when they said, you don't know your motivations, the, the most important part of that to me is that the unclear part isn't that you didn't know your motivations because you, your motivation was just to dance or do whatever. You weren't thinking anything. It didn't have any meaning. But the pivotal piece for me as I'm hearing that is you didn't know their motivation. And their motivation 
to control, to make you feel shame, to make you feel publicly shamed, to make you feel you can't trust yourself, to make you feel like you as a female are going to be this temptress and then you have to watch yourself and you have to shift your behavior, which is very uh, big in a lot of fundamentalist groups that the women are the ones who have to keep covering themselves or not speaking up or not praying out loud or not doing anything to, you know, incite the, the men, but the men don't have to learn how to control their impulses. And so then your world gets more and more scripted and small, and you're much more limited in what you can do. And you also think that at your core, you are this person who is somehow sexualized when you're a young girl. And that's a terrible thing to put into a young girl's head. Uh, and I think also when you said before that, you know, you hadn't, you don't consider yourself a feminist and that's not where you're coming from. I mean, I think for some people to really understand that term, that it's not about female superiority, it's about equality. Yes. And so that's, I think that's your point, that it should be that the same roles should apply to everybody. Right. Um, but go ahead to go ahead with what you were saying. Oh, no. What you said reminded me that I was trained to brainwash my, well, I was brainwashed, gaslit, you name it, it happened. Um, there was this strange thing that he would do. It makes so much sense now. At the time, if he would give a piece that we call it getting counsel, getting wise counsel, and it, there's nothing wrong with seeking advice uh, at all. In fact, as an attorney, I'm a counselor. That's what my, right. I'm a counselor of the law. And my clients come to me and they ask for advice. And non-clients come and ask me. Yeah. Everyone wants advice when they find out. <laughs> so it's giving advice, but it's not, what they meant was, this is what God said. If you don't do it, you're in big trouble mm -hmm. and he's going to kill you. And I can mete out judgment as the mouthpiece of God. So anything was up for grabs. Everything was controlled. And later on, if you want, I, I want to be you know sensitive to time. I did live in his house for eight years. That was something that did happen. Um, but before that, and even during that time, if I, if, either I'd ask him for counsel. So either you would ask it or he'd give it. And if you didn't ask it, you'd get in trouble for not asking. Um, he would tell you something to do. A lot of times it was weird, weird stuff, just odd. You would be so weird. I would lose friends all the time that weren't inside the cult, which is probably why he did it. But I also think, and I think I heard you say this, or I read it in a book, but I think it was on your podcast where sometimes these people just really like to see whatever they can make other people do. Like, let me see if I can get her to do this weird silly weird thing mm -hmm. and maybe in his weird mind he didn't think it was weird I don't know um so I'm trying to think of a specific example of something he said it happened constantly it was little tiny details of my life it might be uh, me confronting someone on something that wasn't a big deal but he all of a sudden heard about it you have to confront them on this and if he ever caught me saying pastor so-and-so said and then repeating what he said to the person so either I'm not allowed to do something, telling my friends in college, like, well, my pastor said I can't do that. I would get in so much trouble because I had to own it. He did not ever want me to say he told me something. When I would go report to others, it had to be mm -hmm. I'm saying it, me, um, not him. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I was like, why did he do that? And recently it occurred to me, for one, it takes the blame off of him. It looks like I have consented to this. It looks, but also it's training me to, to do this to myself. It takes away, it, it's still part of that training me to brainwash myself and not trust myself. But it's, but if I didn't own it, I would get, I mean, it, the tongue lashing, it was devastating. And I want to hear you say that. How can you blame me for this? And then if things wouldn't go well, you know, he'd say, well, it's because you didn't listen or he was never at fault. He never apologized for anything. Well, I've heard of, I heard of an apology one time, so I don't want to be complete. I don't want to lie, <laughs> but generally he never apologized. No, he really never did. In fact, probably the one he said that he did, he probably didn't do it. <sighs> I had to own it for myself. And that is something where it's an interesting conversation to have about consent and 
adults being can brainwashed and mind mind control and all that legally because people will say even especially of like sex trafficked women uh people who are adults they will be charged with prostitution and yet they say well you chose to do this and oftentimes they don't see that invisible gun to someone's head or that um scary talk that they had or just the fact that their capacity for saying no has been taken away from them like they don't have the ability to say no and that's what a lot of people didn't understand about my story when I would tell them what happened to me growing up when I would tell them the things that were so controlling why didn't you just say no that would be the answer I would get from people like uh I don't think that I don't think I could I know that literally the word no I can say it I know that but I had, didn't have the capacity to say, I don't like that. No. Um, and if I did, I would have been probably hurt physically and for sure, emotionally, spiritually. Um, when I was about 18 years old, it was time to decide where to go to college. And I had selected a, it's so strange. I selected a small private Christian school that had rules and like curfews and things. And I, I loved it. They had a music program I was interested in. I was going to be a violin performance major. And then I, it was a lot of things. I was only 18. I didn't know what I was doing. But um, he wanted me to go to a state school, much bigger. But it was because his daughter was there. He wanted someone to be able to watch mm-hmm. what I was doing. It was, it was, it's counterintuitive to hear a pastor, hear a young person say, like, I want to go to this school that has all these rules. <laughs> and then, no, I want you to go to the state school. <laughs> and um, so I... It was back and forth. It was between the school his daughter went to and the school that I wanted to go to. And it came down to us having this conversation where he said, I think you need to do this. And I said, well, actually, I want to go to this college. And he hit, he hit me in my face. Ooh. And at the, up to that point, I was, I think I had turned 18 by that point. It was probably around the summer. So it was like before college. It might have been only 17 still. I learned that my opinion didn't matter and that my feelings didn't matter and that and the next day after that conversation wherein I was charged with basically being disrespectful of him for saying actually I don't want to go there I want to go here I had to apologize the next day to him after he hit me for saying which college I wanted to go to and that is another one of those moments I tell that story a lot because it just kind of encapsulates what I was under. Up to that point, I'd really been in my parents' home and we were part of that place growing up. They had done a pretty good job of sheltering me. It was starting to turn to where he was controlling everything about my life at that point. And um, I actually still ended up going to that college for a year, the one I wanted to go to. I had to justify it pretty hard. Um, I knew where I wanted to go. And I got, I got it done. And then I got, I only made it a year in. And then I guess they saw that I was really happy and made friends. And I was strongly encouraged. You know what that means, <laughs> Nicole. Um, they never say, that's the thing. And that's what I like to share with other people. It's never, there's a, never an actual gun to your head. And no one ever says, I'm controlling you. You have to do what I say. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they lose their mind and they say that. But most of the time, it's very manipulative and it's very like, it makes you think you're doing it yourself, but they are controlling you. So I was highly encouraged to go to the local college at that point and, um, and then move into his house. And so the premise was, I don't even actually know. I used to understand it because I was, <laughs> I was brainwashed. And now I'm like, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. Um, it was to be able to be independent, yet I was living in a finished room over a garage with four other girls in like bunk beds and like they had built in beds in the walls in this house that the men of the church built for him for free. Uh, Taylor made it everything. So this room was made for people to come live in it in his house. So that's really strange. Uh, yes. So a couple things I want to say about that. Um, a lot of controllers will get the message across to you. And again, when you're saying like, when you're in it, it somehow all makes sense. And now in retrospect, you're like, hmm, not so much. So 
there is this idea often, and you can let me know if you think this was part of his presentation of it being that uh, it was in order for you to be independent, that you lived with these people above the garage in his house um, and had to follow by his rules, or he would get physically violent, which is what happened, which is going to cause a lot of behavior modification uh, and fear. But there's this idea that somehow they, he is giving you an opportunity to be away from the people who would control you and the people who would tell you what to do, AKA, you know, your parents and others. And so he's giving you a chance to be free, although not at all. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's like the 180. So is that part of it that, that he made you feel like your family and others were the ones controlling you and he was giving you an opportunity to be kind of an independent young adult away from that? I think a little bit. Yes. I think he had to get me away from my parents. And that was the looking back over kind of the trajectory because it didn't, it wasn't always as crazy mm. as it got. It mm. morphed. However, it was always bad. And I always want to say that very clearly um, because there are some people who still defend it and still say, well, it started out good. And I'm like, it never did. He was always evil. There is nothing good. He just became braver about showing it. And, and sure, and who knows what was really going on in his mind, but there's a lot of evidence to me that shows that he knew exactly what he was doing and he enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, but he needed to have control. And I think, and I know in my mom's story is very obvious, taking the kids away from her yeah. was a power play. And it began when it began when the young people, so you have sort of generations within this group, you can see the mm -hmm. lines very clearly where you have like my parents and you have their kids and, a, and kind of you have like the older and the younger. And that's always how they divided the church. And at some point, the older became mm -hmm. old hat and they became not used by God. They were called the old breed. At one point, he would use a lot of strange Old mm -hmm. Testament references out of context. Like, oh, my goodness gracious. Mm -hmm. Context is everything that you need to know about anything you're reading. And he did not use context. But old breed and new breed. Mm -hmm. I was in the new breed and was basically... That was a terminology that came along later, but starting young, 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 like, so if I, I'm one of the older ones in the, of the kids of the young people. So I would have been like, so there, I was like 13 ish, 12, 13. And there was maybe some, a couple of people older than me and then people younger, but I was, I was about the mm -hmm. age of most people. And, um, they started kind of dividing us up from the parents. Like if some kids had, some kids had gotten in trouble. I don't even know if they had done anything wrong at this point in my life now that I'm thinking back on it, but they had done something like they wanted to leave the church when they turned 18 and go to college and they right, were okay. done with that place. And like, there was a rumor, like they were doing drugs and they were doing all this stuff. And my parents would be like, come here. And they would take me in their room and be like, did you know that so-and-so was doing such and such? And I was like, no, I don't know. So then they were like, okay. Um, but then the next Sunday, it was young people in the front two pews where I have a message mm -hmm. for you. And that was the turning point in which he really started separating us from the parents and saying, member, church membership was it, equated with your salvation. It was your allegiance. It was much more than just, I have decided mm -hmm. to be a part of this organization yeah, yeah. and do my job. Do a, be committed. That's right. what that means to most people. I'm going to show up. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to do whatever. This was leaving the church is more like leaving everything. When they say leaving the church, it means leaving God, everything like you have become the outcast. It's the worst thing you can ever do. The weight to that phrase is like an iceberg. Like there's so much more underneath it that we all know. And that's how they use those terms too. It's just, they sound like normal words to the outside, but right, they mean so much right. more in the inside. And that was the moment I remember when he said, you can leave the church too. You can't just ride on your parents' coattails. And we were in trouble. Like we got in so much trouble. I didn't do any, we didn't do anything, but we were all just like yelled at in a sermon. I think he did that several times, all the young people mm -hmm. to the front two pews. And it was like, and then it would be the altar and then you're crying. I don't know why. I would be sitting there like, I literally have nothing that I feel bad about. 
Like I would be like racking my mind for something mm-hmm. like I am so bad. And like, I could think of things like I had an attitude with my mom. Like those are true things that as a child, I was like, that's not pleasing to my parents. And I don't want to displease God. And that's, we're supposed to honor our parents, but it wasn't like, like I had any major things and you know, you, they would stir us up into this frenzy and emotions. And yeah. And so they put a lot of, it was a lot of fear. And then after that, and that was about when I was 12 or 13 up until I was in my twenties, it was, don't be like the older people. God's done with them. Wow. And if you know what the Bible has to say, it says to honor and respect, to ask them for counsel. It honors the like white cares of wisdom. And it's not at all what Christianity or any faith based on any portion mm-hmm. of the Bible believes truly if they read it right. And so that happened and that was going on. And really he was dividing and conquering everybody. You were isolated. It was the isolation of a generation and then he'd isolate you individually as well. So we were all kind of walking around with all these doubts and fears, but we couldn't talk to each other because someone's going to tell on you. Um, Very much like the Handmaid's Tale where they always go two by two and it's for their safety, but it's actually because they're spying on one another. And so that was what, that's what it was like. And so there was no, hey, did you think what he said today was kind of controlling or did that rub you the wrong way? Like if you had said that to someone, that was the, there could have been a person that might've heard it and been like, yeah, that's crazy. And then you could have had strength in numbers, but usually it was going to be someone who'd be like, I'm going to go tell on you now. (laughs) So you learned, or I learned, well, and something I did was I didn't really have a lot of thoughts like that because I was young and I grew up that way, but I did sometimes. And I did remember talking to my mom about it a little bit. And I, and I did think of my mom as a safe person because back in the dancing sensually movement thing, she defended me. And when we, when we went home, I didn't get in trouble at home. She was like, she said, and I don't know who it was. We've never really talked specifically about it. She's like, I know who said it. And they're just jealous. Like that was my mom. She was just like, and I was like, that's right. So there was some safety at home still. Um, but the pastor had to really get rid of that. And he did that to a lot of families where he would, and it was, it was a lot of, they're still doing it. They're still taking kids out of their parents' houses. They're still living with other people. Um, so yeah, it's crazy. And so then they alienate you from your parents. You don't trust your parents' wisdom or their advice at all. Um, my dad, they didn't, he beat my dad down so bad. My dad, like, hmm, I don't, there is, and I don't know, even know what my dad did wrong. Probably nothing. That's the thing. Uh, the shame, as I've come out of this for the last seven years, I start recounting stories, telling my husband or telling someone, and I still have this shame with the story. And so I'm telling it as though like, oh, I did this bad thing. And then they're like, what? And I'm like, I shouldn't be ashamed of this. <laughs> so, you know, so there's layers still falling off. But with my dad, they, they did attack my dad. Um, I don't know what he did. I, I think sometimes you didn't have to even do anything. I think it was sort of like a predator. They just kind of locked in on a prey, decided I got to take this one down. He's getting out of line. And there was a time period in which, you know, my dad um, wasn't allowed to drive the car, um, stay in the house at, at one point, and really was driven to a point where I saw my dad become just really broken. And it's, it's hard for me to talk about that time period. I was in college. I remember driving home from college to, well, I don't like calling it home, but driving back to the pastor's house and seeing my dad riding a bicycle down Mm. the side of the road and knowing, and just seeing that, like the shame and there's there, he shouldn't have been, he shouldn't have put up with that, but that happened to my dad. And then the way they treated my mom when she left and my mom is a strong and passionate woman. And that was just wrong. And then she's branded as angry and a Jezebel, and um, and then they make an example of those people, and you don't want to be like them. So the people who get out are, you don't want to be like them, is basically what they do. Right. So, you know, and I'm watching that play out really strongly right now in my sister's life, who's still in there, um, where I see her locked and she's married in there, which mm. is the way, worst way to be, because you have to overcome two burdens, basically the submission of your husband, the submission of the church, 
And if you leave, even if you just walk out the door from your husband, not file any paperwork, you are divorcing them. They'll make it into this thing where it's like the unforgivable sin. And then that's what they did with my mom. So they, when my mom left, they turned it into, you're divorcing him. It's about your sin. When she tried to bring up the abuse in the church, they said, it's not about us. It's about you. And you're just mad because we called out your sin. And so that's what they, and they I mean, they did a number mm-hmm. on my mom, as mm-hmm. you know. So my little sister's in there. And I'm sure that she wants out even subconsciously, but I think consciously, because at one point she and my other sister had talked before my, I have another sister who got out. She had said, well, you don't leave me in here. And if you say something like that, then you're thinking like, you don't want to be in there, you know? Oh, right. And you think you should get out. And so they, it's, they arrange the marriages, they do these things, they keep you locked in. And my sister now knows the only way out right now is to do what my mom did, which at, in her mind right now, my mom is probably still very evil. And so they've done a number on her by making that way of escape impossible, except for if, if her husband wouldn't leave with her, basically she's faced with, she has, it's going to turn into what happened with my mom, a broken home where it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be that way. I don't, she doesn't have any children. And we really don't want, we are like always trying to do like whatever kind of information we can find out about her. Like, is she pregnant? Does she have a kid? Because if she has a kid, we're going in. Like that's, <laughs> we're like, we're not messing around. Um, so that's what they did with my mom. She was, in, she was an example. It's like they chopped her head off, stuck it on the stake, set out in front. Don't be like her. And they did that all the time. They would call you names of the person that you didn't want to be like. Like when I left, I left. It's, it's so it's when I look back on it, I'm like so interesting psychologically what I was doing in my mind to justify what didn't mm-hmm. even need to be justified but I wrote a letter to the leader I wrote I I forwarded the letter I wrote to him to a bunch of my close close friends which I mean there's not that many people and there's most of the people and his daughter I was supposed to be in her wedding that coming up year and wrote her sent her the copy of the letter I sent to her dad and then also wrote her my own personal note and said, I just also, just so you know, I can't be in your wedding. But I just knew, I was like, y'all are going to kick me. I am not allowed to talk to you anymore. Um, And she wrote me back and she addressed the letter, Dear Cindy. She called me my mom's name. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. At that time, and in my mind still, they had defamed my mom so well. That was the lowest thing you could call me yeah and she wrote a very long mean mean letter that had me basically hyperventilating in the bathroom at the law school and calling my friends at 11 o'clock at night and saying, can I come spend the night at your house please and that is not the kind of person I am the kind of person that's like I'm fine I don't need to spend the night at anyone's house I was like can I please come to your house and I was just done that was the final final straw for me was her email it was bad One more thing before you go. I truly appreciate Sarah Beth taking the time to talk to us today. She talked so eloquently about having grown up in such a restrictive Bible-based group and the impact it had on her, where the pastor taught her to be ashamed of so much of what was naturally her personality and would be seen as strengths and as charming qualities in the world outside. As someone who was social and talkative and someone who could sometimes be assertive, She was made to feel like she was too much, that she was being aggressive, that she needed to be quieter and more submissive. And she talked today about how her identity was wrapped up in authority, that she had to have someone in charge of her, or so she thought, in order to really be seen as somebody. She couldn't be a person in her own right. When she was also defamed for what was seen as dancing sensually or sexually, when all she was doing was just having a moment of carefree girlhood or childhood of any gender, that dancing around was just something she was doing on her own because she wanted to. She was given the criticism that somehow she was not trustworthy. 
she was up to something and was actually told outright, you don't know your own motivation. That might seem like an innocuous kind of nebulous comment and sentence and accusation, but it's actually quite powerful and devastating and has a long-lasting impact emotionally and behaviorally. That her carefree moments were really about her trying to be sexual and trying to pull people towards her, trying to get that kind of attention. She knew nothing about sex at the time, and she didn't really even understand the accusation, but it was quite disorienting and handicapping, and it will always be when you're under the authority of people who convince you that you are really into doing something that people can't trust about you, and they will convince you that what is truly and genuinely in your heart and in your mind is something that is even beyond your comprehension. That your life, your intentions, your thoughts, your actions are no longer innocent. There's a quote from Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas where he says, As nightfall does not come at once, Neither does oppression. In both instances, there is a twilight when everything remains seemingly unchanged. I think Sarah Beth's childhood seemed seemingly unchanged, but in these moments, in these moments of oppression that happen one step at a time, while her life may have seemed like a regular child's life, and that everything was unchanged, everything was quite changed. It didn't just all happen at once, but it was in these moments of chipping away, of building up this inner distrust, of having her look badly on herself that makes the change over the long term. If you're someone who is introspective and if you're someone who is sensitive about how you are perceived and if you're someone who really does see yourself as good and innocent and so careful about being careful, then being accused of being up to something is so hard and quite an emotional injury. Many years ago, I was with someone, actually, to be honest, who would take some of the things that I said and would then kind of chuckle and look at me knowingly like, They had a sense that they were sure I was up to something. And I would be genuinely baffled and insulted and confused, not knowing why they were kind of laughing condescendingly, like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, right. Or wagging their finger at me in an admonishing way or saying things like, "Uh uh-huh, so that's why you did that. Oh, now I get it. Oh, I know what you really meant by that. And so often I would say, what did I mean by that? Because at the time I was different than I am now, and I wasn't strong enough and confident enough to be absolutely sure to know that I hadn't actually been up to anything. So I would genuinely ask, what do you know? And what do you think about why I did what I did? Maybe I don't understand my own intentions. And interestingly, in retrospect, there was never an answer. There was just more of that condescending laughter about the fact that now I was asking and I really wanted to know that then that was me pretending not to really know and pretending to act innocently. And I would hear, oh, yeah, right, go ahead and act all innocent. Like you don't really know why you did that or why you said that. And now you're saying, oh, I have no idea why. Oh, I'm on to you. You can't fool me. Well, it was maddening. And in retrospect, so hurtful. And I think about those times, and I think about how insulting it was, but also how off-base it was and confusing. They say that people assume what's true for them is true for other people and things they've experienced in their past are things they assume are still going to be happening in their futures. So often, the people who do not trust you are people who are not trustworthy themselves. 
They know they're up to things. So they assume you are too. So it's kind of a word of caution for all of you that when you do something very innocently, genuinely innocently, and another person accuses you of being up to something, it's often because they have been taken advantage of or been lied to in their own past, or they have taken advantage of others and lied to others in their past. So they assume that what's true for them is also true for you. And it's an important skill to learn to stand up either in an obvious way where you say, I'm not up to anything and I don't know what you're talking about. And you should know me well enough to know that I don't play those kinds of games. I'm actually an honest person. Or just to internally be able to say that to yourself. Then no matter how much someone shakes their head or wags their finger at you and gives you this knowing look, That doesn't mean they know your intention any better than you know your true intention. They just think they do. Or it's a power play, a cruel, purposeful game. It's one they play by having you doubt yourself and by having you then feel like you might not be able to trust yourself. It's very mind-bending. And so for Sarah Beth to be able to have a clear sense of herself, she needed to move away from the situation where she was under that kind of microscope. Actually, you know, I don't know if microscope is sort of the right idea here. It's probably more like a prism or a funhouse mirror, something that makes you be seen in a very skewed and altered way. And for her to be out of this church and put in a community to learn to trust herself and to be with people who see her honesty and see her goodness, her innocence, It's very important, if not necessary, for her to develop an accurate sense of herself, and I'm so glad she's having the opportunity now. It's quite disorienting to have people be sure of you, in quotes, in a way that's actually not true about you. And on top of it, to be in a situation where if you argue and defend yourself, somehow that's even more proof of your guilt. And if you disagree, you are admonished for being inappropriately aggressive or defensive which then just proves somehow that you must be up to something after all. The way that I portray this so far, I can think that there's no way out and what that must do to you when when somebody needs for you to not trust yourself and needs for you to seem untrustworthy because it benefits them, they will not give up on their message, no matter how many pieces of evidence you give them that they are wrong about you. And how many times you swear to them that you were never up to anything and that was never your intention. For any of you who have been in that situation, you will know and you will recall that no amount of self-defense or truth matters. So your best bet is not necessarily to keep arguing your point or feel like you have to come up with proof or evidence like you're on the witness stand. Your best bet is to be sure and clear about your innocence internally no matter what the other person says. You don't need to expend energy needing to prove yourself to someone who needs for you to be wrong because, again, they won't give up on their position and you'll just exhaust yourself trying. Just know in your mind and know in your heart that they are wrong. And more than that, know in your heart and know in your mind that they need for you to doubt yourself and not trust yourself so that you can keep your focus on yourself instead of where it should be, which is on them. You really want to see that a person who needs for you to be reduced in your own eyes is someone who benefits from you being kind of crushed and small and made to feel kind of powerless under the weight of their critical eye and who benefits from you keeping yourself in check and working harder to be more introspective and self-critical and self-doubting. One of the things that helps to bring you out of this is gaining contact or regaining contact with people outside of a group who can hold a mirror up to you, not a prism, not a funhouse mirror, to show you who you really are and can teach you about your goodness and remind you about your goodness. Sarah Beth had an opportunity to do that with a few people in her life as she came out and very movingly also with her mother. Her mother, Cindy, who was on a previous episode, who told us about her story and also having her children kind of taken away from her 
and made to feel that she, their mother, was evil, well, she was able to get out, and eventually many of her kids were able to come out too, Sarah Beth being one of them. So next week, you get a treat. You get to hear them have a conversation they say they never had before, where they share with the public their journey, their journey individually and their journeys together. As mother and daughter, both having been in the same group and both having left, and what it took for them to rebuild their lives and what it took for them to slowly and in a very cautious but determined and loving way regain their connection with each other and forge a new and powerful relationship with each other that comes from love and also a great amount of understanding. If you've both survived something and have been in the same situation, it is moving. When you are each finding your freedom and regaining your confidence and kind of meeting each other again, I will talk to you and to Sarah Beth and her mother, Cindy, next week. And just making sure, once again, that you're all staying healthy and safe. And here at the podcast, we are offering you support during this worrisome and trying time. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.